0: Hello, welcome to Historical Fantasy. I'm Guinevere Lee. The good news of the day is that my second novel, Pecari the Azure Fish, came out today. The bad news is that unfortunately I won't be able to have a proper book launch. So, to celebrate the release of the ebook, I thought it might be fun to do an audio recording of the first chapter. If you haven't read Orope the White Snake, the first book in the series, The Whispers of the Gods, don't worry. This is really a standalone chapter. The POV character in it is a new character to this novel. The kingdom itself was briefly visited in the first novel by Tersch, So you can listen to this without any worries of spoilers. So let's get started. Hikari the Azure Fish by Guinevere Lee, as read by the author. The princess of the mountain stoke the fire. The cold bit at her bones. On mornings like this, she awoke feeling as though something had gnawed on her joints while she slept. Sometimes she dreamt of the gnashing teeth coming at her in the dark. She would awake to find she'd thrown her blankets off and lay shivering, alone in the black night. Princess, the sweet voice spoke beside her. Kassar looked up through the dim light of her private chambers to see the bright young maid holding a tray of warm bread and lumpy yogurt in a wooden bowl. Kisira scowled at the rosy cheeks and tiny red nose. Her bright almond-shaped eyes seemed to beam in the cold. On the table, she ordered. And before the girl had even set the tray down, she snapped, Help me sit. The girl's smile didn't waver. This was her second year serving the princess, and she knew what to expect from her mistress. She placed the wooden tray down on the small table along the wall, And then opened the wood shutters in the cold castle walls to let in more light before returning to her bed to help Kassara sit. She let out a deep groan as the girl let Kassara use her arm for leverage, pulling herself up to a sitting position. When did my body get so stiff? she wondered every morning. She had been young once. It hadn't always felt like this, even on the coldest winter mornings. It was nearly spring. Drips of water fell off the icicles lining her windows, which were cut in the black stone of her walls. But the cold was still debilitating. She could still recall what it had felt like when she was a girl on mornings like this, ecstatic to go out and play in the snow, marvel at the tiny snowflakes and lick the icicles. When she had been just a girl frolicking in the snow, the first Kasara, her great-grandmother, had been queen of the mountain. Those days during the long peace were a blessing she never recognized until they were gone. "'The summer she turned fifteen, she blossomed into a woman and was married. "'That was the summer the queen of the mountain had marched her armies to the walls of Hatute, "'and the mountains had only known blood and cold ever since. "'My new dress,' Kassara croaked, "'pointing to the wardrobe as the young girl began to fetch the princess's clothes for the day. "'The dress had arrived the day before. "'It was a lovely dark forest shade, made from the finest wool, "'copper moon stitched on the long sleeves.' and a collar lined with warm mountain lion fur. The girl helped her stand and dressed her. Cassara tried to remember the girl's name. She was always forgetting names these days. But the girl reminded her of her cousin, Alassia. That's why Kassara had kept the girl on, even though her bubbly attitude sometimes made Cassara want to throw her from the tower window. Finally dressed, she sat at her table and let the girl brush her hair as she broke her bread, mixing it into the honeyed yogurt. Her hair had been as shiny as copper once, but now was nothing more than wispy strands of snow white. She hated to see her reflection, always expecting to see the young girl she had been on her wedding day, not the wrinkly woman who had lived through fifty-six years of civil strife. "'Tell Perseus I will see his new invention at midday.' Kisara spoke with her mouth full of bread. "'Before then, I must see my cousin.' Kisara pushed her tray away, finished." Yes, princess, the girl said, taking the tray and leaving the room with a bowed head. It was easier to call the five sisters her cousins, even though they were very distant cousins at this point. The five sisters were all the direct descendants of five real sisters, the daughters of Nessa, the first queen of the mountain. Each one was given reign of one of the five western valleys still in their control, the eastern valleys having fallen to the usurper kings in Hatute. They had allowed the lords to rule in their respective valleys, while the sisters took charge of the temples, though only the valley of Nesete was really under their law. This was how the women had managed to keep their hold of the throne for over a century. The cousin she was going to visit that morning was the youngest of the five sisters. She left her chambers, the largest in the castle, and made her way down the curved stone walls filled with guards carrying large swords and sharp spears. The castle had been built like a maze with twisting passages, countless dead ends, and secret chambers hidden behind tapestries and stairways. She knew each stone as though she had placed it there herself. When the last siege on her had failed to take the city back over two decades ago, they refortified fortified Nesete and the five sisters spent an increasing amount of time living in the palace with her, rather than in their own valleys. They said it was to help defend their queendom, but she knew the truth of it. It was her throne they wanted— the throne one of them would get, because she was an old woman, her husband, Alelti had died years ago, and she had never produced a living heir. It was the price of the moon god. When men still ruled Nesete, her father forced Nessa to marry the king under the mountain, Hatturgus, hoping to unite the torn kingdom. But Hatturgus was a cruel brute, and instead of the sons Hatturgus desired, Nessa gave birth to five girls. They say she conceived many sons, but willed them to shrivel and die. The moon god did this so the true monarch, the queen, could rule the mountain. They say Haturgus burned her alive for the crime. Haturgus spared the five girls for fear of being cursed by the gods, sending them to be raised in the moon temple. She didn't know why the moon god chose her to pay her great-great-grandmother's debt over a century later. The moon god and temple was still dear to her, even after being away from it all these decades and bearing its curse. As tradition, all the girls destined to become one of the five lived there from the time they were nine until their thirteenth year, just like the first Kassara did before winning her throne back from the usurper. Kassara had been there the same time as the sisters Hosessa, Alassia, and Muesa. They had been as close as real sisters. Muesa had been the oldest. But Kassara had been the leader of their group. She was the one who would be queen one day. They were all dead now. Huzessa had died last winter. Kassara had been convinced she herself would pass this winter. But now that spring was here and she had survived the ice, perhaps she would survive another year. I will never live to be queen, she thought bitterly. Her mother would turn ninety years old next summer. The queen was delirious with age always confused and hardly ever strong enough to walk across the floor, let alone rule. But so long as she drew those raspy breaths, she would be the queen of the mountain. Perhaps they would die, mother and daughter, on the same day. The thought made her shudder, and not because she feared death. Her cousins would tear each other apart like ravenous dogs to claim the throne. Then one of them, one from the army of tiny Kassaras, would either take the throne or lose it to one of the usurpers in Hatute. The tiny Kassaras. That's what her mother used to call them with a grimace before she had completely lost her mind. Once the other sisters had realized she might not produce a living heir, they had begun to name their first daughters Kassara in the hopes of winning some sort of misguided favor, hoping they would be able to charm their elderly princess and be named the heir. The only good thing about that was it had become far simpler to remember all their names, though now and again she'd call over one of the girls and they would huff, "'I'm not Kassara. Kassara is my sister,' and their mother would box their ear for being rude to her. Maybe she would never be queen, but she would choose the next woman to sit on its throne. And so the sisters were forced to grovel and respect her as though she were queen already, She had almost had an heir. Her own son nearly sat on that throne. It was after the long peace was shattered and war began again. After one of the sisters, ashi burned herself alive in the Moon Temple. It was after her grandmother ordered the execution of her own sons, furious with her younger brother for trying to steal her throne, decreeing that no man would ever inherit the crown." When she had given birth that cool summer night, at first there had been silence. She could still hear her voice begging the child to cry, to let her know he was alive. And when the strong wails of her son had finally filled the room, she only had a moment of relief before he was carried away. Her mother entered, sadness etched in her face. The next morning the court heard the news. Another stillborn child. And with that, even though she never voiced it, "'Kissara knew she would never produce an heir for the throne. "'The halls of the castle were always dark and cold, even during the summer. "'There was a constant chill on the mountain. "'Kissara hugged herself, wishing she had thought to put on a warm cloak. "'She was almost to her destination, though. "'She went through the large wooden doors and down the hall "'that displayed the statues of all the old kings before the War of the Five Sisters. "'Before the War of the Brothers.' Before war was all the mountain knew, The faces on the statues were gruff men with mustaches and long beards on their chins, their eyes made of glass that looked off into the distance. It was the same look her husband had the moment after he'd died. The chambers were warm and filled with young women. One of them was reclining on a soft chair, being fussed over by everyone. It was still early, but everyone had come to call on her first thing, to congratulate the young woman. Sister Kassara, the princess greeted her namesake, and everyone bowed their heads as she entered. This Kassara, one of the five sisters, had held the position her entire life, her mother having died in childbirth. The girl was in her twenties now, with long black hair that hung in a thick pleat over her shoulder. On her forehead now, she wore a simple crown with a topaz eagle on it. Until she wore her own crown, this young Kassara and the other three sisters technically had power over her. She couldn't describe the sensation that suddenly overcame her as the young girl laughed. The topaz on her forehead glinted, and her pale, delicate hand fell onto her stomach where her baby had begun to grow. The queen sends her fondest congratulations, Kissara said kindly enough, though she knew her smile looked more like a wince. And you, sweet cousin? Zidewa asked from the corner of the room. Kisara turned to Zidewa, another of the five sisters, Muesa's daughter. She and Muesa had been pregnant at the same time and had spent days imagining how their daughters would grow together and be like sisters. That was the first daughter she had lost. Zidewa was well into her fifties, her hair revealed streaks of dark grey and white, but her eyes were still dark amber and intelligent. "'Her crown bore an eagle as well, but hers was made of copper. "'I am overjoyed,' Kassara spoke through gritted teeth. "'May you give birth to the happiness I was denied.' "'With that out of the way, Kassara had to go around "'and give a polite hello to everyone assembled. "'There were children running around the room playing, "'their mothers gently reminding them to stay away "'from the lit fire pits under the open windows. "'There were no men.' They would be with the proud father-to-be. Kisara hoped she would have a son. It would be one less person to line up for her crown. She left before any other ladies arrived, to whom she would have to smile and be pleasant. She instead made her way to the throne room. It was the oldest part of the castle. A king had built the great hall, but they called it the Queen's Hall now all the same. A statue of the first Kisara stood at its doors. It was the same place the real Kassara had stood when her father ordered her to walk naked through the city to exile. The walk that caused the riot that ended with Kassara returning to this same room to sit on the throne for the first time. It said she was still naked as she sat on the stone chair and was given her crown. The statue was not naked, though. It depicted a woman wearing the scale armor and leather jacket of a soldier, a helm bearing the symbol of a triangle encircled by a gold band and holding a sword aloft. Kassara went out of her way to go through the main entrance, wanting to see Queen Kassara's face. She saw herself in the woman's strong jaw and small eyes. The queen's hall was mostly empty, save for a few guards. She walked down the hall, staring up at the high windows that led in very little light. Most of the light came from the torches and fire pits along the walls. At the end of the hall was a dais, five stone thrones set in a line. The one in the middle was far larger and grander than the others, though. She walked up the stone stairs and sat in the middle, the queen's throne, feeling the cold stone cool her skin and wanting to dig her nails into it and scream how it was hers. Princess, a man spoke. "'and Kassara turned to see the singer. "'He looked like a young man to her, "'although he was nearly fifty. "'He had a smooth face, almost beautiful, "'without a single hair. "'His body was thin and lithe, "'his fingers long and delicate. "'He had been a eunuch from birth. "'He held a small square harp under his arm. Kissara smiled at the man, her face softening. "'Sing for me,' she commanded gently. "'What song shall I sing?' he asked, taking a seat on the steps. "'Looking up at her with smoky topaz eyes, eyes like her husband, Alelti, had had. "'Sing of the walk, sing of the day my great-grandmother won my crown.' "'She purred and the singer smiled. "'He began immediately, his eyes closed, but his fingers still managed to find every note flawlessly.' His voice was soft and high like a bird's, that voice had moved her to tears many times. The long winter had passed and with it the king's son. The usurper feared he'd be the last Cassara's exile had begun. The riot would have failed if Haturgus had been in Nesete, but he was away in Hatute. Didn't they know? she wondered. All who hold Hatute are cursed. But instead of blaming the curse, Hatturgis blamed his own daughters. He could have ordered Cassara and her sisters executed, but he hadn't the courage. He didn't know that sometimes you had to sacrifice your child to save your kingdom. When the song ended, he continued to play, and Cassara let him, closing her eyes and nodding her head back, feeling as though she could fall asleep and pass away peacefully. What difference would it make if she died now or later? Her life was over anyway. She would have no crown, no legacy. She would have a cold tomb of stone. Oh glorious princess, excuse the interruption of your lowly servant. Cassara opened her eyes to see a middle aged man bowing low to the ground. Parathos. He was not one of the Matuwega. He came from the Cephian Island somewhere in the middle sea. He had arrived in Mataway a few years ago. He said he came for the bronze produced here, for the metal was cheap in the mountains, and he used it to make sculptures. Give me metal, and I shall give you immortality. He had promised the queen of the mountain when she was still well enough to sit on the throne herself. He made a large statue of her, twice her size in real life, and set it on the pass between the valley of Sali and the valley of Nesete the unofficial border between the Queen's lands and those of the usurpers. He stayed at court after that, hoping for another job. But until he told her about his invention, she had had no use for him. He was taller than most men in Mataway, thinner as well. His brow was more pronounced and his eyes wide and bright. His long limbs were wrapped in the silks he had brought with him, though age had frayed the once fine stitch and he often wore a muddy wool cloak over them to stave off the cold. His hair was golden, with the slightest hint of red, though it was speckled with grey hairs. She had always thought he was quite ugly. She turned to the singer. Later, she said sweetly, and the singer bowed his head, stood up, and left the hall. I have never heard music like his. The gods truly blessed him, Perithos continued to grovel. She sighed in annoyance. She hated groveling. "'Yes, he is the Prince of Music.' Her voice was dry. She knew how little the gods had blessed that man. If he had not been forced into music before he could walk, he would have nothing in this world at all. "'I hear you have finished,' she tried to smile again, but the air was still too cold for smiles. "'Yes, my princess, the queen will be most pleased when she sees our invention,' "'he motioned towards the main entrance. "'Pray I will be pleased to see it,' she ordered, standing up. "'She turned to a guard. "'Have my cloak fetched for me.' "'Once she had the long wool cloak lined with soft mountain lion fur, "'wrapped around her frail body, she followed Parathos out of the queen's hall.' They continued through the narrow hallway to the exit of the castle. Parathos prattled on about his workmanship, and she nodded politely. But listened not to a single word, he said. The entrances were built to bottleneck any army that might try to enter. Though to get to the halls, they would first have to go through the double walls surrounding the castle, as well as the double walls that divided the valley in half. South of the double walls were farmlands and animal herds. And to the north was their great city of Nesete. She exited onto a stone plaza, steep steps descending before her. From the top she could see the wide, low city, made from the dark mountain stones. The city roads had been built much the same as the halls in the castle, with the intention of confusing and misleading any invading army. The king who built Nesete had only one thought in mind, creating an impenetrable city. It would have been a commendable feat, if not for the fact that being in the highest valley in the mountains had kept any army from marching on their walls. Though the usurpers were certainly poised to do so. The usurpers. She wrung her hands together as she walked down the steps with Parathos. This invention was for them. The Sephion was getting more excited the closer they got. She could see it now. It was just to the right of the main plaza. They had built a raised dais for it, in the middle of which was a large fire pit, and straddling the pit was a massive bronze ram, its beautiful curved horns encircling its head and glinting in the midday sun. Its face looked focused, almost angry. She chose a ram to honor the first Kassara, when the first Queen Kassara had won the siege of Hatute. Thanks to the plague that killed nearly everyone living inside the walls, She had ridden to the hall of a thousand gods on the back of a white ram. When her own forces finally won that cursed city again, she would march the usurpers to her bronze ram. It was a giant of a ram. She wanted to make sure both the usurpers would fit inside together, but Parathos had gone above her expectations. As he opened the door on its side, she saw four or five men could easily fit inside it. A few other people were gathered around, admiring it with awe. "'As you requested, the screams of whoever you place inside will travel through the pipes, emerge from the nostrils, and sound like a great bellowing beast,' Parathos smiled proudly. "'Are you certain?' She gave him a sideways glance. "'Of course. I tested it extensively.' He looked offended. He always looked offended when he wasn't being praised. "'She hated pompous men.' "'Show me.' He laughed, sticking his head inside and gave a half-hearted scream. No. Her voice cracked like a thunderclap. Get in and do it properly. His laughter turned nervous. He looked around at the people who watched with curious eyes. Though his eyes fell mostly on the guards coming up behind Kassara, he couldn't refuse her. Of course. He cleared his throat, putting his arms on either side of the entrance one foot inside and pulling himself in. He sat close to the open door. Again he screamed, and she heard weak bellowing coming from the ram's nostrils. No, no, she sighed loudly. It's too quiet. Well, Parathos seemed to pale as he sat in the belly of the beast. The door must be closed for the full effect. Ah, She smiled, then looked to a guard on her right. "'Close the door.' The guard moved faster than Parathos could react. In a moment the door closed and Parathos' nervous face disappeared. A strong bar was placed over the entrance. "'Parathos, tell me, have you ever heard a dying man scream?' Kessara asked loudly. Through the door a weak reply came. "'No, princess. "'It is something you cannot replicate on command.' "'You,' she pointed to the same guard. "'Light the pyre.' "'Princess?' Parathos called, perhaps not having heard her correctly. "'The guard crouched beneath the ram, "'and for a moment she had the image of a kid suckling at her mother's teats. "'Would that rams were women,' she thought weakly. "'But perhaps this ram was not a ram at all. "'Suppose it looked like a male, but inside lay the womb of a female.' Inside, Parathos would be nestled much like a baby. The light of red fire began to dance underneath the ram and the guard stepped back. Everyone backed away as the fire grew. Both worry and excitement etched on their faces. Without thinking, Kassara placed her hand on her belly, much like the young Kassara had that morning. My baby's burned inside me, she whispered to the wind. Banging came from inside the ram. "'Princess? Princess!' Perithos called as the fire grew, reaching so high that it blackened the ram halfway up its hinds. Perithos screamed, and the ram bellowed. She frowned. It was still too quiet. "'Stoke the fire,' she said quickly, her hand digging into her dress and gripping the skin beneath it, stabbing into her useless womb. "'Cry for me!' And then it happened. The moment when Parathos realized Kassara did not intend to open the door, and his death rattle came screaming out of the ram, converted and changed into a monstrous bellow. She looked around at the expectant faces, eyes wide with terror, and she felt the smile creep across her face. She realized this was the first time she had felt warm in years. (laughs) Thanks for listening to my recording of the first chapter, or really more of a prologue, to Pecari the Azure Fish. Like I said before, the ebook is out today. The paperback and the audiobook, which I will not be doing, uh, the audiobook will be recorded by Darla Middlebrook, the same person who recorded the first audiobook for Orope the White Snake. Those will be coming out on the 7th of July, which also happens to be my mom's birthday. <laughs> You can pre-order the paperback now on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Chapters Indigo, and anywhere that sells books. For more information, please go to my website, guineverelee.com. That's G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E dot com. You can get all the information about my latest novels and when the next episode of historical fantasy will be up. Until next time, stay healthy, everyone.